Do you ever hear news stories about how we might all live to 120 if we do the right things and just feel a little bit exhausted, like living longer is just another goal that we're being asked to achieve? You have to plan for exercise and good nutrition and brain training and weights classes and regular socialising. And sometimes you would just rather have a cheese toasty and a glass of red and veg on the couch. But would having a meaningful and happier life, no matter how long it is, be a better goal for us? Is there a perfect way to grow old well? Psychiatrist and Associate Professor Neil Jayasingham has a specialisation in ageing and he's hosting a discussion for Vivid Ideas in Sydney called How to Grow Old Well and Try Not to Die. There's a life goal if I ever heard one. Neil, great to have you on Life Matters. Thank you very much for having me. And joining that discussion, and this one, is Ruth Wilson, who knows something about this topic. She is a nonagenarian, among other things. Hi, Ruth. Hello, Hilary. Nice to be here. Great to have you with us. Ruth, how do you feel about having reached 90? Well, it's an amazing story, mine, Hilary, because I always say the best years of my life actually started when I was about 84. And that is um, not a usual story. I remember my father being very happy when he used to sing a song called Life Begins at 40. Mm. And I think for me, my life really began in my 70s and 80s when, for various reasons to do with my health and probably ageing and feeling perhaps I was um, passing use by date, I started to read vigorously, rigorously and with great pleasure again i'd always i'd been a lifelong reader but at that stage of my life um, i started to read new contemporary novels and i also went back to the novels of jane austen which had really made me a reader in the first place starting when i was a teenager yes and developing a reading life has absolutely changed my life completely I have become more invigorated, more curious. It's been exercise for my brain. I read for sheer pleasure and I read with very close attention. So they're two different ways of reading. Uh, I undertook some research, which I think gave my brain a real shake up and a workout. And here I am at 90, feeling as though, well, as long as I feel as well as this, I could go on forever. Well, and Jane, uh, sorry, uh, Ruth's book is called The Jane Austen Remedy. But Ruth, as you said, you know, your your parents had a very different idea of what constituted old age and they died long before the age that you have reached. Was it hard to imagine what your life might be like as you got older to have a roadmap? Hilary, I never imagined that I would live to the age of 90. My father died at 65. He was a very energetic man. He played sport all his life. Maybe he was a little bit overweight and he did he did smoke a cigar after breakfast every morning. After breakfast? Good after breakfast. And I have to tell you, dipped in marmalade. I've never known anyone oh. else do that. He was a he was a very eccentric gentleman, and I missed him terribly. My mother died uh, at eighty one, and she was a much more passive person. I had no thought of being able to adapt and adjust in the way I think. If you want to keep up in the twenty first century, and you want to try to live longer. You just have, they're they're the two bywords, I think, adaptation and adjustment. 
and the rate is getting faster and faster. So sometimes I feel as though my as though my brain's on a bit of a uh, a wheel running, trying to keep up with things, but. It's quite exciting, and I have been fortunate in having a fairly strong constitution. I've never been athletic. I was never good at sport, uh, but I walked when I was younger, and uh, I have two wonderful physiotherapists now who keep me from creaking too much, so uh, <laughs> I'm doing okay. Excellent. We're speaking with Ruth Wilson, who is the author of a book called The Jane Austen Remedy, which details some of this journey she's been telling us about today on Life Matters. Professor, Associate Professor Neil Jayasingham, uh, what got you interested in how we think about ourselves as we age? I understand that the psychiatry did have a, an impact on you. It certainly did. Uh, I, I've always been interested in the issue that uh, when I think back about my early career and my early upbringing, the people who made the biggest impact on me were those uh, with age and with wisdom. And I started my training in old age uh, psychiatry. Nowadays, I see patients of all age groups. But early on, I remembered, first of all, a number of patients being brought to me who I was told couldn't get better. And Invariably, I found that there was always something that could be done to help them to get better. The other thing was a really striking thing that um, one of my senior colleagues had this amusing quirk that with every patient that he saw, he would pat on the head after he finished seeing them. And I was amazed that this wasn't at all an unusual thing. Pretty much everyone there at that particular facility tended to call their patients, their kids. Um, it was uh, uh, it was uh, very derogatory and very ageist uh, as an experience. Well, and I imagine that the uh, medical and scientific focus on ageing has had to change in recent decades because our life expectancy has really increased. How uh, good are we at dealing with ageing over that longer period? Oh, we're absolutely terrible at it. Um, oh, great. <laughs> get a get a get a uh, get an endocrinologist, a cardiologist, and a geriatrician into a room at the same time, and ask them two basic questions: What is a normal blood sugar, and what is a normal blood pressure? Uh, I have been to no less than three conferences which have tried to debate this, and no one could actually get an answer. Uh, this is not the first time we've done an aging-related uh, discussion. It, uh, I remember at the last one, which uh, we did with the Psychogeriatric Nurses Association, we had an 82-year-old uh, lady stand up uh, and say that she was fed up because she had been struggling for the last two years to research to find an exercise regimen that she should be following. And all the available exercise regimens seem to cap out at 60 so it, 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 the world didn't really seem to have caught up with the idea that we are living longer and what we are supposed to do as we get older. Mm. Uh, and it's also because, um, as uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth's experience was, uh, 30 years ago, the life expectancy was uh, barely in its 60s. Currently, life expectancy is an average of a two and a half. And um, we are still stuck with this thing that 65 is old age. What not many of us know is that the reason why we have 65 is old age was, um, like all good things because of the Germans, uh, Chancellor Otto von Bismarck uh, introduced it as a the world's first national pension system in 1889 when life expectancy was 39. Ugh. So we haven't really changed our perspective of what old age is. We've been happily keeping the same retirement age and the idea 
at which this is when your life is supposed to end, uh, which is absolutely not the case anymore. Well, Anil, you talked about the, the people's frustration at you know being unable to find health and exercise and well-being. Uh, patterns and, mm. and strategies that fit their age. I understand that these days the active ageing theory is the most commonly followed approach in medical circles. Tell us a yes. bit about that and how much life satisfaction is taken into account in that. So what not many people know is that the healthy ageing study, uh, the healthy ageing movement, first of all, is a really good thing. It encourages us to be at our best but it actually came out as a protest. You see, in 1961, a sociology professor called Elaine Cumming uh, came up with this theory called disengagement, which was the idea that people progressively turn inwards, gradually withdraw from others for the benefit of the individual in society. So everyone hated that. Um, everyone thought that it was a disgusting theory. But the thing is that she actually didn't come up with this out of the blue. It was actually based on evidence. She studied several hundred adults as part of the Kansas City Study of Adult Life. It was 1963 uh, where Robert Havighurst, two years after the disengagement theory, came up with the idea of activity theory, which is the idea that maintaining activity patterns and values, which is typical of middle age, was necessary for a rich and satisfying life. And that's where we get the whole healthy aging movement. We get amazing people who need to be celebrated because they are people that we should be looking up to. The problem with the healthy aging study is that it wasn't and still isn't evidence-based. What is evidence-based is a number of people seeing stories about those climbing mountains and uh, doing incredible things in their old age and becoming more despondent about their own lives and what they were able to achieve, so, uh, hence the difficulties. So what are the things that actually help older people feel good and, and stay mm. you know, active in themselves, whether or not they're climbing mountains? <laughs> well, uh, it's the well. There are there are two studies which I think uh, is worth uh, discussing, which we'll be talking about more in tomorrow's uh, vivid uh, um, uh, ideas. But I'll give you the brief version. There's the Harvard Aging Study, uh, which looked at about 720 individuals over 60 years. I think currently it's about 70 years and counting. And they looked specifically for anything that was done which was associated with happiness, and they found that. When you take away all the like maintenance of like career productivity and all sorts of things, after the age of 65, the things which are most associated with satisfaction were any roles involved in maintaining and disseminating wisdom, which is what uh, so Professor George Valiant, who was the head of the study at the time, called it the keeper of the meaning in 2002. And it wasn't personal achievement. It wasn't completion of individual goals. It was about having anything which you passed on to the next generation, which is why I find stories uh, such as uh, Ruth's uh, so inspiring. It's not just about her discovering a completely new way of living life, but also listening to her story, I think, gives important information for the next generation as well. Mm. And I know that you're involved Neil, in a, a mm. charity called Wisdom Connect, and people can find more information about that, which is about linking generations in that way. I want to quickly read you a text because I know we've only got a short time together. Sure. Margaret says, autonomy, it's essential at any age, but older people can lose it too soon and not by choice. Yes. I mean, that's a, an interesting thing too, isn't it? I mean, if we're thinking about those rather nebulous ideas about well-being and life satisfaction, it's not just about how we choose to think about our own ageing. There are some really solid practical factors shaping our experience of ageing in this country. What do you think needs to change more broadly so that we can all have this satisfying older age? We need to be more in charge of our own destiny. Uh, we need to recognise that life does not end at 65 and that we are entitled to better health care, better opportunities 
and things that uh, weren't available in the previous generations. Uh, it's it's all right. It's the sort of thing that uh, I'm kind of in this for the long game. Um, I see that anything which is going to be involved in trying to improve the welfare for people who are aging is something which I'm going to hopefully benefit from if I'm fortunate enough. Uh, we, we do basically need to remember that it's our lives and we need to make these decisions in terms of how we want to grow old and what we want to see out of life. Because if we don't make those decisions, they will be made for us. Mm. Ruth Wilson at 90, do you feel pressure to be the kind of poster girl for older people? Do you find your lifestyle choices under a bit of scrutiny? Are you eating enough veggies and things like that? Nothing like that at all. What (laughs) I've found is (laughs) I have made connections with younger people and I'm talking now about people in their 60s, usually people who've read my memoir and who've loved Jane Austen. That's what drew them to it, not my age. But they talk to me a lot about how that intergenerational connection that Neil spoke about is so important. And part of my active working life back in the 1990s was becoming very involved in designing intergenerational oral history programs where the wisdom of the elders was really passed on to the children. And it was like a generation and a regeneration. Both generations benefit so much from that. Mm. And I think uh, that, that to me is, I mean, you can lock me up in a room when I can't move, but you'll never be able to lock up my mind, I hope. And that's, I think, what keeps us going. As long as our mind is working well, and that's where that whole discipline of neuroscience has been so helpful for me to understand how keeping reading, how keeping, how understanding how other people behave, whether it's in books or in real life, fires up those neurons and hopefully keeps them going so that we can continue to live well as we move into our 90s. Exactly. And to hear that vitality in your voice, Ruth, that is a life goal for me now. And if I can get it through Jane Austen, I'll be a very happy camper indeed. Thank <laughs> you, you so much. It. Oh, no, she's a lifelong <laughs> companion. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Ruth Wilson there and psychiatrist, Associate Professor Neil Jayasingham. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.